0: A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Lewis Mel Madrona. Lewis graduated from the Stanford University School of Medicine. He is certified in psychiatry, geriatrics, and family medicine, but his work goes far beyond traditional mainstream medicine. His work discusses healing practices from the Lakota, Cherokee, and Cree traditions. And he says, I've always felt a mission to share the wisdom of the indigenous world with the non-indigenous world. One of the ways that Lewis goes about that is, of course, by writing, he's written many, many books, including Coyote Wisdom, The Power of Story and Healing, Coyote Medicine, Lessons from Native American Healing, Healing the Mind Through the Power of Story, The Promise of Narrative Psychiatry. Lewis also wrote a book called Remapping Your Mind, The Neuroscience of Self-Transformation Through Story. Maybe more than most of my interviews, this one for me is truly a journey into subjects for which I'm personally curious. Maybe you are too. Here are some of the things that I'm curious about and I asked Lewis about in this interview. I ask him to share. How does he go about blending indigenous wisdom with a scientific perspective? I ask him to tell me about what it means to be a healer. And what's the difference between being a healer and being a doctor? So this is an interesting blend of cultural background. His mother was Cherokee and Scottish. His father was Lakota and Quebecois. I asked him to share with me the importance of relationships to healing. I also asked him to talk about the power of stories in healing. The view he shares in his writing, I think is very remarkable. This idea that we all live with what he calls a master identity narrative, which is the version of the story we tell to explain ourselves He shares what it means to listen like an elder. He talks about indigenous talking circles, what they are, how they work, what the benefits of them might be. I ask Lewis to share with me about ritual and ceremony, how we can use them in our lives and in our healing. I also ask him to share his perspective about prayer, what he's learned about prayer from the Lakota tradition. And then we also explore a little bit about making decisions as a group, what it means to cooperate and what happens when we attempt to short circuit that process in the interest of time or our own personal interest. One thing that Lewis says, he says that we can't escape the stories of our childhood. The best we can do is to identify them and to evaluate whether or not we want to keep them. He also says that the art of working with story is the art of creating future narratives of success and of reframing past narratives to mine them for new, more versatile and empowering meanings. There was a line in in this book where Lewis quotes Barry Lopez. I don't mention this in the interview, but he says, "Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive." And I think why that touched me so deeply is I have been there. Maybe you have too. Maybe you work with people who have to where life seems empty, it seems meaningless, the challenges seem insurmountable, you're not sure that it's worth going on or that you're even capable of it. But this idea that sometimes a story can be more important than food or anything else that will help us stay alive. Just so powerful to me, it's so beautiful and really understanding that, helping people become more aware and not just create, but create and live empowering stories. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend, Louis Malmadrona. Louis, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. Louis, will you please tell me what's life about?
1: If I could answer that question, I might get a Nobel Prize. (laughs) Well, here's your chance. Here's my chance. Well, you know, an elder, a Lakota elder told me that we sit around in spirit world and we look at all the goings on on the earth. And we have these inspired moments in which we think we can really learn something or really change something or really make a difference. And so we, we sign up to come down to the planet. And he said, often when we get here, we realize that we sure did take on more than we should have. And, and it's a lot harder than we thought. And it's pretty heroic that we get through to the end. So that's maybe the best answer I can give to that question. Okay, fair enough.
0: When people ask who you are and what you do, how do you typically answer that question?
1: Well, typically I ask them if they figure out who I am to let me know because I've been looking for myself for a really long time and I'm not <laughs> sure which direction I went. So, and what do I do? I, I try to bring what's, what I think is really valuable from indigenous philosophy into Contemporary healthcare, you know, medicine and psychology, and I also work to bring improvements in the way that Indigenous people get healthcare, both medicine and and psychologically speaking. So I'm I'm really working in both worlds with a kind of two-eyed seeing model, you know, looking at the world from an Indigenous eye and also from a contemporary scientific perspective and i'm trying to communicate you know to kind of keep a travel log of what i'm doing and communicate with others share what i'm finding out as i try to accomplish these things and hopefully help other people avoid my mistakes get there a little quicker than i did
0: well i i know i told you in the email i sent you asking for this interview that i found your book healing the mind through the power of story in the Strand Bookstore in New York City. And I love that store. I try to visit it at least once every time I'm in the city. And I usually only buy one or two books. And this was the only book I left the store with that day. And it was so perfect as I started reading the introduction and read about your background. And I didn't know it from your name. But as you talk about it, even in the introduction, where you talk about being your mother being Cherokee and Scottish, while your father was Lakota and Quebecois. You know, I could see very quickly that you had a a very interesting background and as, as I got into the book, that you have a very unique worldview. And that's no surprise seeing that you're certified in, you're trained in family practice, psychiatry, emergency medicine, geriatrics, clinical psychology, and then all of your learning and exploration in these indigenous and native ways. And really seeing how you're walking in these two worlds or this bringing maybe now one path together. One of the things that you talk about is how there's a difference between medicine as it's practiced here in the Western world or the North. However, we talk about the developed modern world and the traditional world. Will you share a little bit about your view of what's the difference between being a physician and being a healer? How are those different?
1: Well, so... I think of of healing as as providing a safe place for the medicine to flow to develop that it's non-hierarchical that it's collaborative that it's deeply respectful and I think doctors can be healers in the in conventional medicine it's more removed from sort of personal relationships or or i see you i listen to you i respect you it's more about so i diagnose you and then i go to my algorithms and i apply an externally based treatment to you and i monitor the results and you know in in the hospital we have guidelines and algorithms for almost everything that could go wrong with you. And we don't, for the most part, we don't believe that we need to have a very personal relationship with you to treat you, you know, to be helpful. All we need is certain facts and then we apply our algorithms and, and guidelines and whatever happens, happens. Whereas I think with healing, it's more mysterious. It's not, I fix you. It's, we sit together and I hold space for the medicine to flow and maybe something happens. I, I think it, it was a, there was a, a meeting once of, of Lakota elders and they were asked what they wanted to be called and none of them wanted to be called healer. They definitely did not like that term and they didn't want to be called medicine men they didn't like that one and the only thing they could come up with is they they didn't they didn't really mind being called fix it people <laughs> yeah because their idea was that if something could be fixed they wanted to be involved in in the process but they weren't you know in in the Lakota world you know, people don't advertise, and if you if you went into onto the reservation and you said, "I'm looking for a healer," you'd never find one, because everyone would say, "Well, I'm not a healer. I'm just a common man," or "I'm just an ordinary man," or "I'm just an ordinary woman." So, what what would you say if
0: you were looking for a healer? How would you ask, or how would you find one?
1: You wouldn't. The only way that you would find one would be to be helpful. To people, you know, to show up and help with cooking or help with setting up chairs for events. or And then if you develop a relationship with someone and you happen to say, well, gee, you know, my knee has been really hurting me. They might say, well, you know, if my knee were hurting me, I might go see Fred down the road, you know, over there. And, and I might, you know, take him some tobacco and say, hey, Fred. My knee's is hurting. You know anybody I should go talk to? And he might say, well, you could talk to me. Or he might not, depending on what mood he's in. So it, it works that way. And I think it works that way in most indigenous cultures, you know, that people don't advertise. And, you know, everybody I know who's a healer has a day job. You know, the two of the most, I met two of the most profound people in the Lakota world while they were at their day job being electricians.
0: Wow. Why do you think it is that there's this incredible humility or or reluctance to, you know, broadcast, advertise, communicate, even just simply talk about oneself in terms of being a healer? Why is that?
1: Well, because people are aware that they didn't do it, that it, whatever healing is, it comes from, mysterious places. You know, the word in Lakota is Wakan. And you, you say that something is Wakan. And it means, it means sort of simultaneously sacred, holy, and mysterious. And so it, if something word. is Wakan, and you take credit for it, then that force could get kind of angry with you. And it might turn out badly for you. And so you wouldn't want to Take credit for something. One of the, one elder, he was really a funny guy, he said, Never take credit for healing. But it's okay if they if they give you a gift, you can take the fee. He said, But don't take any credit. And and be sure and, and tell them, Well, I didn't do anything, but I sure do I sure do need what you're giving me, so I don't mind taking That's it. interesting. Yeah, and he said, But but I've got enough blankets. Tell them next time bring cash. I need to pay the rent. <laughs>
0: so for everybody listening, if you have the good fortune to ever cross paths with a native healer,
1: cash can help pay the rent. True. That is true. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I so used to... Let me... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was living in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I used to take people to uh, a guy on the Sturgeon Lake First Nation, which is west of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And I would always coach them you know, to, to, to bring him some cash, whatever they could afford. You know, when when he, when he worked on me, I would usually leave him $100 because I could afford that. And it seemed like a reasonable fee. But I would tell them he had more than enough blankets. He had more than enough to eat. But he sure did need to buy gas and coffee and some of those other supplies that are pretty hard to trade for. So... You know, I would take people up to see him, and part of my work was to was to prepare people. You know, to to work with. I mean, these are even people that are off his First Nation. He was Cree, but you know, there were a number of people who were raised off the reservation and in urban environments, and 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 they had to be prepared for how to go to the reservation. Well, they call them reserves in Canada. They had, they had to learn how to approach an elder and how to behave and what an appropriate gift was and and things like that so that was part of my function you know in the community was to help people reconnect yeah
0: no that's beautiful and and that's something that came through very strong as the theme for me in your writing i read coyote medicine remapping your mind and this one healing healing the mind through the power of story and First of all, I wanna thank you for the writing that you've done. I found it extraordinary in just so many ways. In learning, I've, I learned all kinds of things I didn't know before. Like I learned that when we take opiates, that we actually activate other parts of the brain that help us feel more pain because the opiates are making us unconscious to that to the pain. And so we're actually working against ourselves. I learned this fact about doctors on average, only listen to a patient for 18 seconds. So like all these facts and incredible insights that you provide and and your personal experiences from years of healing and working in medicine. But one thing that came through as a theme is um, connection, the power of relationships, and of course the power of stories. So I wanna ask you about that right now. And, And by the way, one of those things too about the power of placebo, where you talk about traditional psychopharmacology and about research has been done with placebos to show that in many cases, placebos are as effective as these mind-altering drugs that big pharma seems to be, you know, foisting upon us. But meanwhile, these simple but not necessarily obvious or easy things like relationships and the stories that we live actually perhaps have a more profound effect in the in the big picture for the context they create and the experience in our lives. But... Would you speak a little bit more about the importance and the power of relationships in healing?
1: Well, yeah, and maybe I'll I'll begin by telling you a story. So once upon a time, a woman came to see me who had pretty much every diagnosis a psychiatrist can give a person and had been hospitalized more than 300 times. And it attempted suicide more than 50 times. And so she walked in and said, I've seen everybody else in town. Now I'm going to come see you. How are you going to fix me? And I said, I'm probably not. I'm probably not going to fix you because I'm actually not any smarter than anybody else in town. And she said, well, how would you change my medication? And after talking to her, I said, well, I don't know because you've been on every combination of medication possible and you probably know more about medication than i do so if you have any brilliant ideas for how to change your medication fine you know i'm gay, you know i'm i'm good with that but i really don't know what to tell you and so at the end of the appointment i said well do you want to come back and she said yeah i do and i said well great that's wonderful cuz i don't know What I'm going to do with you, but we can keep meeting and trying to figure it out. And so over the next six weeks, she she told me her story. And I never came up with any brilliant ideas for medication. She tried a few things that, of course, didn't work any better than what she was already doing. And when she ran out of stories to tell me, I started telling her stories and traditional stories, contemporary stories. And after about a year of our meeting, once or twice a week, she decided she would join a, a couple groups that we did. And we had, we had a group called Complicated Minds for people who thought they had complicated minds. And then we had a group called Fragile Minds for people who thought they had fragile minds. And she went to both. And it turned out was really helpful in both groups because she had so much experience and knowledge of the mental health system that she could give great advice to people. So one day, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or two years into our meetings, she looked at me and she said, you know, I'm really bored of being a mental patient. I think I'll stop. I think I'll start. I think I'll change my diet start exercising, and live a healthy lifestyle. Wow. And I said, wow. Same thing you said. I said, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. And she proceeded to do just that. And she started improving by leaps and bounds. That was eight years ago, and she's never been back to hospital or, or attempted suicide or any of that. And she's working now and creating art, selling her art, Helping other people, and what, you know, what did I do? I mean, I just I just sat with her and told her stories. And a colleague asked her. He said, "Well, what did he do?" And she said, "Well, he was the first person I went to, who, who was honest and said he had no clue how to help me."
0: <laughs> and everybody had some answer.
1: And she said, and and the thing was. I could tell that he always believed I could get better, even if he had no idea how she said sitting with him, I caught hold of his vision that I could get better and and that's why I liked to come. That's why I kept coming to see him because there was nowhere else to go to 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 sit in that vision
0: that's amazing that that's really that's really beautiful lewis and and it squares with something in in remapping your mind where you write, and I understand you wrote this book with your wife, Barbara, so I suppose the two of you write, the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan said, the greatest gift we can give someone is to listen fully without judgment or interpretation.
1: Yes, and and that is so true. And, you know, that's how you know you're with a real elder, a real indigenous elder, because that's what they do. And Barbara loves to tell a story about meeting this Ojibwe elder named Dan Smoke. And I hope Dan's listening. He might be He might be a guy who listens to your podcast. And so Dan, my wife comes from a family in which no one ever gets to finish what they're saying. They all talk on top of each other and they interact. I, I know you. families like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> in fact, I'm being one of those people right now.
1: All right. And so when we first met, I took Barbara with me I was on, Dan had a radio show, and I was going to go on it, and I took Barbara with me to meet him. And she, she started talking to him, and he listened, and he didn't say anything. And she kept talking, and he kept listening, and he kept not saying anything. And finally, she ran out of things to say, and he kept listening. And, and she tells that story because she said it was the first time in her whole life That she actually finished what she had to say and couldn't think of anything more to say. And that's what elders do.
0: How can we learn to do that? I mean, it sounds nice. Oh, just listen without judgment or interpretation, right? Like intellectually, that sounds really easy. But as a practice, how can we learn to do that?
1: Well, you know, it's really an indigenous and or a Buddhist practice because What one has to do in order to listen without judgment or interpretation is to be self-reflective and to observe oneself judging and interpreting and to step backwards when that happens and say, aha, there I am, judging and interpreting. Now, what story was I in? You know, because, I mean, I do this in the hospital. I'm walking down the hall and I look at someone who may be dressed a certain way, or have a certain kind of tattoo, or, you know, is wearing a hoodie, even though it's warm outside. And, you know, I have a judgment. And I have to step back and take a deep breath and say, okay, that's a story that I got from the culture that I live in. Where did I get that story? Where did I learn to judge people who look this way? And, you know, you know, can I, can I, Step away from that story and just listen. Mm. And that's the work. You know, in in Indian country, there's, there's something called the talking circle. And it exists in North America. We learned that it exists in Australia. In Australia, they call it yarning circles. And we found a really humorous paper to us, humorous to us, because we always know these practices as coming from the Lakota, but there was a, a group at Queensland Technical University who wrote a paper about yarning circles, and, and as part of the paper, they said, oh, and it isn't, isn't it curious that North American people like the Lakota do this kind of thing, too? I wonder where they discovered it. <laughs> so, so apparently, this is indigenous people all over the world have discovered the talking circle, but talking circles are really hard for people from these European derived cultures because you sit in a circle and whoever holds the talking stick talks as long as they want to without interruption. And what's hard for people is that the speaker speaks to the center of the circle and the expectation is that no one listening makes eye contact with the speaker, makes sounds to indicate that they're listening or makes eye contact to show that they're listening but also looks to the center of the circle and really listens and it turns out i mean it's really hard for people to to really follow this the rules for a talking circle but if you do if one does one learns how to listen without judgment and interpretation Because if you can't respond to someone, then you get to observe your own reactions. And you get to see your judgments. You get to see your interpretations. And you get to practice letting them go. And the marvelous thing is that when it gets to be your turn to talk, you realize that most of your brilliant ideas somebody else already said. And oftentimes one says things that that surprise oneself you know that you know spontaneously emerging new ideas come forth that you didn't even know that you had so so that's another way that people can learn to listen without judgment or interpretation you know lacan learned through his own psychoanalysis which could be time consuming and expensive talking circles are cheaper and easier Since mostly they're free. No, I love that
0: even in your book, I believe it is in Healing the Mind Through the Power of Story, that you give instructions for someone. Uh, You say something to the effect that you believe that everyone should belong to at least one healing circle. And for anybody reading this, if they feel inspired to start their own, here's how to do it. And then you give the instructions. And I thought that was really great. What you just said about The person with the talking stick speaks to the center of the circle without making eye contact. I don't remember reading that as part of the instruction or that those listening also don't make eye contact. They just also look to the center of the circle. That's an interesting nuance, but that's pretty great. Thanks Thanks for sharing that.
1: It took teaching people how to do talking circles for me to realize that they didn't know that. Having grown up in the culture, it wasn't obvious to me that people didn't know you know what? What I didn't know that they didn't know, and so yeah, yeah. if I were if I were rewriting the book, I would throw that in. You know, we learn through doing, and turns out people didn't know that.
0: My my dad used to say, "Nothing is obvious to everyone," so <laughs> that's not surprising. One thing that I want to ask you about. Well, I want before we leave the topic of a healing circle or a talking circle. One thing I'm curious about. I've heard, and I think you wrote this as well, that the talking stick gets passed until everyone has said everything they have to say. But what I wonder is, does the stick continue to go around until everyone has said everything, or does it only make one rotation?
1: You know, ideally, it makes at least three or four. And in the old days, when time was of no concern, it would keep going until consensus was reached and nobody had anything more to say. In the modern world, we can't get away with that anymore. And so typically, there's an agreed upon stopping time. And we just have to stop when it's time to stop. And, and you know, our ceremonies have changed in that way, too, because once upon a time, for example, in the Lakota Sundance, the people would gather And if it was a cloudy day, they would just not dance. They would just wait until a sunny day to dance because nobody had anywhere to go. But now we just we start the dance and we dance for four days and then we're done because everybody has to get back to work. Yeah. Well, and and, and what you're saying
0: about, you know, that you reach consensus there was something you wrote in Coyote Medicine that's along these lines that I thought was really fascinating that you write Evil begins as the desire to shorten the process of creation by bypassing cooperation. And I read that like three, four times. What does that mean? That evil begins as the desire to shorten the process of creation by bypassing cooperation. I thought that was uh, that was pretty profound because you're right. When And I love the way you said that about when time was of no concern. And now, you know, time is money and everything operates according to schedule in this world you know, and we can measure down to the nanosecond or the microsecond, it's it is definitely like a different world or a different experience for sure.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so I think when people try and bypass cooperation, they impose their will on others. And, you know, before Europeans came, for the most part in North America, governance was not by majority rules, but by unanimous agreement. And people had the time to work toward consensus. And we don't have that time anymore. And so now one group imposes its will on another group, and we try to say, well, it's fair if it's the majority who's imposing their will on the minority. But maybe it's not fair. I mean, maybe the ideal is still that everyone agrees with what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, it's it's a little difficult to imagine in, in a nation of 330 million people, but still, I think, is it possible? Sure, it's possible, but what would it look like or what would it take? That's the interesting, interesting question for me.
1: And it is possible to imagine consensus in a small company. It is possible to imagine consensus maybe even in a small village. And, you know, with town meetings where people just talk out until they all agree, could that ripple out to a whole country? I, I don't know. It's certainly worth talking about. It's certainly worth thinking about, you know, because, because if, yeah. if we don't I, dream, I, I agree. it will never happen.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And so let me turn our conversation now to the topic of story. You know, this is something, this is an idea that really I think I was first exposed to a few years ago when I did a workshop. And if you had said to me something like, oh, Brian, that's just a story, you know, or you told me something along the lines of, we all live, you know, different stories. I don't know that I would have received that at the time, but a lot of the writing that you do and and the work that you do, you talk about this in, in a lot of ways. And I love this one passage and, remapping your mind where you you write about the idea that we all carry a master identity narrative our Version of the story we tell to explain ourselves We tell short versions of this story to encourage others to see us as we wish to be seen This master narrative or identity narrative is a synthesis of many stories. We have accepted and repeated about ourselves Will you say a little bit more about you know, how do you think about the stories that we live and how we can live more empowering stories, how we can let go of disempowering stories, how we can maybe find stories to guide us into the future, or reframe stories from the past, just anything that feels useful or, or interesting or relevant about stories. Will you speak to that?
1: Yeah. You know, it turns out that, that the way humans record and recall experiences is in this narrative format, this story form. Virtually all of our memory is in a story that we call up. And some of those stories are so practiced, so rehearsed, that we jump to the conclusion without having to recall the story. And so I think building awareness, building self-awareness, has to do with becoming aware of all of the stories that we carry within. And the Lakota talk about the Nahi, which is the swarm of all the stories that surround your body that influence your behavior what you believe how you interact with other people you know how you decide what a good life is actually consisting of and so so i think that that the task is you know when we when we find ourselves Believing something is to say, well, where's the story that supports that belief? How did I learn to think that? Who taught me to think this particular way? Or, you know, I work with people sometimes who are consistently unlucky in love. And what I ask them to do is to go back to their teenage years and to watch the movies from which they learned about romantic love and and to get to know the stories that they absorbed and by doing that they learn the story that tells them how to select a potential partner and they can begin to ask themselves hey is that a story that really works you know and and just this past weekend I was working with a woman who was, you know, consistently unhappy in her relationships because she kept picking guys who needed to be fixed, you know, who needed her help to improve them. And it just wasn't going that well. And, and so we, you know, I call it the, the Jane Austen story, you know, pride and prejudice, you know, the, the, the uh, wayward guy you know, reforms with the from the love of a good woman, you know, which is a great novel, but how often does it actually turn out to be the case in real life? You know, sometimes plots for novels don't make good strategies for living. And and so we you know, we were able to look at some of the of the experiences, movies, books that she'd read that that made her think that, you know, you you pick a guy who needs your help, and, you know, my my idea was well, you could you could keep enacting this story. You know, you could keep trying to prove that Jane Austen is applicable to ordinary life, or you could maybe try a different story.
0: Yeah, or or even write your own.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, that was, I mean, that was really helpful. It was really helpful to her, or she said it was, to become aware that, that this was not necessarily reality, but it was a plot. It was a strategy, you know, that she was applying consistently and repeatedly. And it was producing the same results consistently and repeatedly.
0: Yeah. I love what you you say, you know, in the book, again, where you say, we can't escape the stories of our childhood. The best we can do is to identify them and to evaluate whether or not we want to keep them.
1: Right, right. To become aware of them. And I I think that visiting other cultures, having friends from other cultures, Mm -hmm. celebrating diversity, helps us become aware of the stories of which we're not aware Because we see that other people can think incredibly differently from us and behave incredibly differently and do things differently. And it all works out for them.
0: Yeah. Well, and that was something, Louis, that your book really opened my eyes to as well. I'd never even thought of in this way where you talked about what racism is, is not understanding or diminishing, dismissing, you know, minimizing another, like another group's stories. I was like, that is really interesting because I would have, you say, well, like, what is racism? Oh, it's prejudice. It's bias. Yeah. But what are the mechanics? Well, it's that. It's this whole way of life, not just, to, not just the the rituals or the activities you do, but the stories, the narratives that undergird those things when we say, oh, that's stupid or ours is better, you know, that that's what's actually happening. And, and so what you're saying now about having friends from other cultures or other traditions, you know, I can see how that how that could be valuable for us.
1: You know, we were recently in Australia, we were consulting uh, to a group of people in which mostly non-indigenous Australians were working in a health context with indigenous Australians. And, and our job was to try and help them to figure out how they could get along better, how they could work better with each other. And, and, Right away, we figured out that they weren't talking to each other, and, and that the non-Indigenous people had no Indigenous friends, and the Indigenous people had didn't have non-Indigenous friends, and outside of work, they didn't mingle, they didn't communicate, and to my amazement, you know, I met a woman who had written a book about this, you know, very place, and, and her, her, she was Indigenous. And I started reading the book and listening to her CD that came with the book and asking questions to different indigenous people. And in, in four days, I knew more about the local culture than some of the people who'd lived there for 20, some of the non-indigenous people who'd lived there wow. for 20 years. And, and I pointed this out to them. I said, look, all I'm doing is listening and, and, and being curious and, and asking questions you
0: write something that I thought was pretty remarkable. You talk about what neuroscience and science and medicine is now telling us about memory. And you make the point that it might not be accurate to say that we remember memories, but instead we reconstruct them. Will you say more about
1: that? Right. It turns out that, that it's not very efficient for the brain to remember things in full detail that apparently it would use up too much space. So we have gaps that we fill. For instance, you propose to your wife at an Italian restaurant. If I ask you ten years later to tell me about the proposal, you actually may not remember any of the details of the Italian restaurant, but you'll pull in your generic Italian restaurant memory and you'll give me that and the way this was discovered is that uh, researchers in New York City where a lot of people live and don't move away posed this question to a large group of people and then went to the place to check it out and found out that almost uniformly people didn't remember correctly so we have these modules our generic French restaurant, our generic Cambodian restaurant, our generic Catholic Church, our generic reconstruction of high school that we just insert into the ongoing reconstruction. So we have what's called gappiness in our memories. And that's a real
0: that's a real term like scientists and doctors yeah. use gappiness?
1: It's a real term in neuroscience. Wow. Gappiness.
0: Yes. And why does this matter? I mean, and and this is not just with life's big, big memories, significant moments, right? But as I understand it, this is actually occurring every time we bring anything from the past to mind, that this reconstruction is actually occurring and, and that we're selecting unconsciously, but we're choosing what to remember, how to remember it. We're actually, as I understand, changing the memory every time that we're bringing it to mind but why like is that accurate from your understanding and and why does this matter why is this important
1: it's important because it helps us to realize that whatever we think happened might not have happened or it might not have happened in the way we think it happened and an example from my childhood i remember my brother rolling off a chest of drawers and breaking his clavicle and no one else in my family remembers that today. Well, did
0: it, did it happen?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I wow. remember it very clearly, but did it happen? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I suspect some of the mi- people in my family, for example, my mother would have had some reason not to remember it because she would have put him on the chest of drawers so that he could have rolled off. hmm my brother was too young to remember it. Quite possibly my sister was too. So did it happen? I don't know. It's a mystery. And many of our memories fall into that category. And it gives us some flexibility in recreating our past. It gives us certainly flexibility in creating a different spin on the past.
0: Yeah, and this is key to what you, what you teach and this idea of working with story mm-hmm. and this notion that the things that we remember or these memories we recall in a very real way, they're stories. And, and I love what you say in just a moment, I wanna ask you to talk also about the future and about this idea of future life regression. But you say in remapping your mind, the art of working with story is the art of creating future narratives of success and of reframing past narratives to mine them for new, more versatile and empowering meanings. Now that that's a lot of words, but when I read that, that just landed on me as a like as a coach and the work I do as a coach, helping people to reframe what they've experienced in the past to be more empowering and to create future narratives that are fulfilling and exciting. You know, that to me was like, that's the whole game right there.
1: That's the whole game. And it's, that's what psychotherapy is all about. I mean, when it's done well, I think.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, not as I'm familiar with it, but I that's part of what I think I appreciate about your work is that's your view. Let's turn now for a moment to this discussion of future life regression. That's an interesting term. But will you say more about what that is and how you go about it?
1: Well, in its simplest form, I'm creating a uh, situation in which people can imagine themselves projected into the future. Now, if we're in a in company where it's okay to be a little woo-woo, we could talk about, well, maybe we're actually seeing the future. You know, if we think about quantum mechanics and parallel universes and how time doesn't exist and and that... You know, there's a group at the University of Arizona who's proposing that we move because the future sends messages back to us to tell us what we need to do in the future so that we can set up the movement in the past to make it happen in the future.
0: That's an interesting view.
1: Well, they've got data. And their math overwhelms me. But they're very rigorously scientific in this presentation. It's a guy named Stuart Hameroff and Roger Penrose at the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. So maybe it's not so far-fetched that we're getting messages from the future. But if you don't want to believe that, then just stick with the imagination. It works also that it's really hard to get somewhere if you can't imagine being there. Yeah. And, yeah. And not only that, but once you imagine being there, it's really important to imagine how you got there and yeah. to break down into steps that you can accomplish.
0: Yeah, and the thing you know, I think about with this is I think about what Tony Robbins says, where he says the only difference between faith and fear is that fear is the imagination undirected, and faith is the imagination directed. And as I hear you talk about this you know, creating this future and then kind of working backwards from there. What I think is really beautiful about it is the opportunity that each of us has to take conscious responsibility for doing that. And in so doing, and creating this beautiful or empowering or exciting future, however we would describe it, not only do we get the benefit from that, but it also displaces perhaps whatever disempowering future was there. So it's not just a plus one, but it's also eliminating perhaps a negative one, you know, so to speak. And and that's, again, it's available to each of us, but it's one of these things that it's like, oh, I'd never thought of it, or it sounds easy, but now how do I do that? So how do you go about helping people to do this?
1: You know, in, in my work, I, I use visualization, hypnosis, guided imagery, whatever we want to call creating an altered state of awareness, in which people can suspend their disbelief. Mm. So the goal is to allow your disbelief, which is really a belief in the negative, put it on hold for a little bit and for us to play, to create a kind of internal laboratory where we can just imagine interesting things that could happen. And we can become aware of the objections of the various characters in your internal mind map there's often characters who are saying you can't do that you're not capable of that you stupid jerk and wait other people have those voices too <laughs> apparently everyone has them i don't know yeah. why they're so common yeah you know, where we get these from in france you know they blame the catholic church but I don't think it's entirely their fault.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it can't all be the Catholics.
1: No, it can't be. (laughs)
0: Because
1: it's too universal.
0: Yeah, it seems to be pretty universal. Well, let me me ask you this. Let me turn our conversation to an exploration of ceremony. I realize, you know, in our modern culture, at least here in the United States, I think, you know, outside perhaps of religious traditions or maybe of people are Masons. I don't know where else people might engage in. I mean, maybe the Boy Scouts. There's different organizations, surely, that have their own rituals and they have their own traditions. But as a culture, you know, especially where we're such a melting pot that, you know, maybe there's ethnic traditions and, and rituals and things that are preserved, but we don't seem to have them nationally. So maybe it's for that reason that I was particularly intrigued by what you've talked about. I mean, that plus having experienced some of this in recent years through my limited exposure to indigenous traditions or participation in Eastern cultures, you know, in India, recently got back from Nepal and Tibet and have had a chance to experience the power of some of this myself. But you write prayer and ceremony. This is in Coyote Medicine. Prayer and ceremony hold a magic and power that cannot be denied. It is through ritual that we address the non-physical energies which surround us, nurture us, protect us, enliven us, and instruct us. It is the simplest way of formally requesting help with our problems. And then in the same book about 15 pages later, you say time and again, I have had the experience of working for weeks with a patient to change a situation or improve a physical symptom almost without results. Then we would do a ritual together and an immutable problem would transform literally overnight. This has happened too often to be dismissed so easily. So I have so many questions, including, you know, like what kind, of, what kind of rituals or what kind of ceremonies do you do and how do you think it works? And can you give us any examples of the kinds of obstacles or challenges that they help overcome or how we can use them in our lives? Just, I just want to explore this topic with you a little bit. Where, where does it make sense for you to start?
1: Well, I've come to understand that ceremony is really energy medicine. Hmm. And that we're working with energy. What if we don't believe in energy? Well, Einstein believed in energy. It's pretty hard not to believe in energy if you use electricity.
0: That's true. That's true. Okay.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we can measure people's energy from distances away from their body. We can measure their electromagnetic field.
0: Yeah, I've learned about that. So. Mm -hmm. Here, we're still talking about something that's scientific and empirical. So I'm with you there. And by the way, I believe in energy. I'm just attempting to play the role of, you know, maybe a skeptical listener. Yeah. It's your job. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I'm I'm confronted by skeptics on a daily basis. Yeah. Okay. Um, So keep going. Okay. So we know also that when we put people together in a group, that their heart rate becomes coherent with each other their brain waves synchronize that the same areas in their brain begin to light up in all the people you know that the mirror neuron system gets activated and it turns out that being together in a group doing something is a really powerful experience and and um, this is
0: anything right throwing a ball playing an instrument sitting around talking
1: this is anything right okay Okay, so if we're all together with the purpose of being healing for each other, and that's the intention of all of us, and that's where we're directing our awareness, then it has an impact. And where I go, which not everyone else goes, I believe in spirits. And I think that when we put on a good show, when we really do something dramatic, and entertaining and powerful that we get their attention and they say, well, aren't they cute? Look at them. You know, it wouldn't be such a bad idea to help them out.
0: This, I mean, this is spirits talking about us. You're saying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: they say, you know, they're making such an effort, you know, to talk to us, and, you know, throw them a bone. <laughs> you yeah. know, give them some help. And even if they don't help us, the fact that we're together asking helps us. Yeah. So there's nothing to lose. It's like Pascal, you know, the famous French mathematician. Someone asked him if he believed in God. And and to, to their surprise, he said, of course. And they said, but Pascal, you're a scientist. You're a mathematician. How can you believe in God, which is a very typical attitude in France? And he said, well, the way I see it, if there's a God and I don't believe in God, God's going to be pretty angry when I die and I'm going to be in trouble. And if I do believe in God and there's no God, well, then when I die, I'm not in trouble anyway. Yeah. So it just makes sense, he said, to believe in God.
0: Yeah, I, I totally see that. There's there's definitely a logic to that. You write about this multiple times about having had the experience Of working for weeks with a patient to change a situation that whatever talking and intention and you know trying hard meaning well like these kinds of things weren't adequate as is often the case I think in each of our lives we all have things that we want to change and they seem to be complaints or obstacles that we kind of live around or live with so I think probably everybody listening has something whether it's that last five pounds 10 pounds on their belly or it's something in their relationship with their significant other or, you know, something like that. But will you tell me a little bit about, like, maybe give me an example of a time you worked with somebody, what happened, like, what was the result and what was the ritual or the ceremony that you did to get there?
1: Sure. So an elder with whom I trained told me that the art of doing ceremony is figuring out when to do it. Hmm. because he said it's a little bit like an avalanche that you have to wait for enough snowfall so that the avalanche is just around the corner, that there's enough snow there that the next snow is going to produce the avalanche.
0: And, and in this case, what is snow? Is it, is it pain? Is it desire? Is it something it's else? All,
1: it's all the work that's gone into, it's all the work that you've done together
0: hmm. and
1: the person has done with other people that leads up to this moment. And I think I think we make a mistake in believing that when we do a ceremony or when we do psychotherapy or healing or whatever we do, and it works, that it's all because of us. Right. Because there could have been 99 people who contributed to that outcome before us. And we're like the last snowfall that causes the avalanche which couldn't have happened without the 99 other people.
0: Mm, I, I love that view. And, and I have a teacher that uses the the metaphor of the the fruit, that the fruit falls suddenly, but it ripens slowly.
1: Right. That's also a good metaphor. As you can perhaps guess, I used to be an extreme skier. <laughs> so, oh, yes. I'm going to use skiing metaphors. I
0: like it. I like it. And I love that image of the the single snowflake being the difference maker in triggering the avalanche there's something really beautiful about that
1: so i'll i'll give you an example so once upon a time i was working with a woman who had attempted suicide many times and i had come to understand you know some of the factors that went into her attempting suicide you know she had been sexually abused by her father and grandfather. She gave birth at age 12 to a stillborn son. I mean, heavy stuff. And so I told her that, and we had done some work together to get to this place.
0: And how old is she by this time?
1: By this time, she is 22. Okay. And I told her that I wanted to do a ceremony with her in which we ask the spirits how to honor her and so you know we sat down together and across from each other and I burned some sage and you know sang some songs and and burned some tobacco and and then I told you know I told her that that the spirits are telling me that you deserve a medal because of your sacrifice for your brothers and sisters since you took on the abuse, they weren't abused. Wow. And no one has honored you for that sacrifice. And, you know, when we're done here, we're going to find, we're going to present you with a medal, a medal of honor, a purple heart to honor the suffering and the pain that you went through on behalf of your siblings. And said a few more words. and and sang some more songs, and smoked a pipe, and, and you know, we were done. And she didn't attempt suicide ap- anymore after that. Wow. And, and I did give her a medal. I found a medal at a thrift store. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it looked really good. Probably wasn't an actual Purple Heart, but something that filled in well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it looked really good. Oh. And we presented it to her in, an, in another ceremony. We meaning the people who knew her, colleagues of mine and people who knew her. And it was deeply meaningful for her. Now, the skeptics would say, well, you just, spirits didn't talk to you, just made it up. Oh, well, it worked.
0: And, <laughs> yeah.
1: And it, if I had just said, oh, if we had not been ceremonial, it would not have worked as well. mm. So it worked better in the ceremony than it would have if I had just said those words to her.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think you say somewhere in your writing, if it works, it's good medicine.
1: <laughs> right. I totally believe that. Yeah. I mean, how many times do we have we said things to people that don't work? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I do that from time to time more than I like to admit, for sure. Right. Well, right. and and especially with our a medical establishment today where i think we want to reduce things to you know labels and diagnoses and and algorithms and prescriptions and and care less now maybe we're afraid of it or we're afraid of liability or something i don't know but not taking the time to really understand the individual the constellation of relationships you know being willing to listen to our intuition or our imagination and and take you know these what from, I think, our established view look kind of unusual, you know, about, oh, let's do this ceremony. Let's bestow a medal. You know, that's certainly not part of anything I've experienced in our traditional medical system, but it worked.
1: Right. And it was more common to think this way within traditional medicine. When I started, you know, I graduated from medical school in 1975 And in those days, it was more common to think this way. In 1977, George Ingalls wrote a classic paper, which was followed by a book on being biopsychosocial. And a number of people added biopsychosocial spiritual. And we weren't criticized for practicing in this way or more in this way. It was widely accepted. And by the 1990s that it disappeared. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I think it has to do with money because with short-term, with appreciating short-term capital gains over long-term savings. So you make more money throwing drugs at people and seeing them for 10, 15 minutes, short-term. Right. But if you're a health system, like – England or Denmark or France, you, you gain more money in the long run by saving money in the long run because your, your payments are coming from the government, which is coming from the people. But in the United States, there's just no incentive to think about long-term outcomes because no one makes money on long-term yeah. outcomes. Yeah. And it's just how business is done and I was part of a study that happened in the in the UK where we showed that giving people who came to a general practice more time and working with them psychosocially saved this, the UK health system money. And it saved so much money that my colleague who was the The first author on the study got an award from the National Health Service for saving them money. (laughs) Wow!
0: Wow! Amazing.
1: But I tried. Yeah, I tried to do the same study in Maine, and it got nowhere because it looked like it would, wouldn't make money.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Let me ask you a few questions about prayer as you understand it. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with Louis Mel Madrona. Please tune in again next episode as we continue the conversation. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work